Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Made Radio. Hope you're doing well. We have on the line Jeffrey Singer. In fact, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, a general surgeon in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. He is a principal and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics Limited. It's the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Arizona. Dr. Singer, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so a lot of people have a lot of bureaucracy between themselves and their doctors, and they don't generally see it a lot. The view from the doctor's office is usually very different from the view of the patient who's cycling through just looking for treatment or a checkup or something. And when I say to people who think that America has a free market healthcare system that usually more than 50 cents on the dollar in American healthcare is spent directly by governments, you get a kind of double take and people really don't follow it that much. I wonder if you could help people from outside the system, not just within America, but overseas, see what kind of government intervention you deal with as a practitioner on a daily basis. Well, just for example, to get to your point about over 50 cents out of every dollar is, is paid for by uh, the government. We just you have, you have Medicare, which takes – the government has a monopoly on uh, health insurance for everyone over 65. They basically have eliminated a, a market for any private insurance carrier. So when, when you turn 65, unless you're still working and get the insurance through your job, you cannot access – health insurance for yourself. You have to buy the government health insurance. So you got the entire over 65 population. Then you got the indigent population, which is paid for by something called Medicaid, which involves both uh, federal and state funds. And that now after the Affordable Care Act was passed, was actually expanded to cover people up to 138% of the poverty level. So that's another huge chunk. In fact, just recent data showed, as an aside, that um, there are an estimated 10 million people in the United States who now have health insurance who didn't do the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I think it's like 97% of those have Medicaid. That's the, those are the people who are added to the insured, so-called insured roles. So you have Medicare and Medicaid. And then um, you also have uh, uh, the VA taking care of a huge chunk of the veterans' health benefits. And, when the, and then when the government... Um, pays for things, of course, and it's, it's only, it only makes sense, they're going to demand uh, that things be done a certain way because they're ultimately paying for the bill. So over the years, how that's translated, you know, at first, when, when Medicare and Medicaid first came on the scene in the, in the 1970s, it actually was, uh, even though the, the official organized medicine, as they say, the AMA was opposed to it, it turned out that in short-term thinking, it's, it was a uh, struck gold for the medical profession because the original way it came out, and this probably was, you know, intentional. We're not stupid. The, the, the way you, you get uh, cooperation from the people that you need cooperation from, I'm sure it was similar in Canada, was to be very generous to the providers. So the original plan was uh, you seniors go to any doctor you want anytime for anything. You doctors, you do whatever you want to do. Pay no attention to cost because we're paying for it. Just send us the bill. And so what that ended up doing was it stimulated overutilization by the patients and also overutilization by the doctors. Uh, we used to joke when I was uh, growing up in, in New York City in the 1960s, uh, doctors were considered always comfortable, but they were middle class, but they were comfortable. They always, you know, they, they always were going to put feed their family, but they weren't considered affluent. 
And the Buick was called the doctor's car. That was actually a <laughs> slang term. The Buick is the doctor's car. By the you know, end of the 70s, the Mercedes and BMWs were the doctor's cars because all of a sudden people were coming to the doctors much more frequently than they were before. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like if you gave, a, you know, your MasterCard to your child and said, go, go to the mall and buy some things, have yourself some fun. And, and the child walks into the store and says to the store owner, uh, I have this MasterCard. And I, I could buy stuff. What do you got to sell me? So it's, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's, it, you really can't criticize the doctor or the patient. It's, you know, as Milton Friedman talked about, the different categories of spending money. You're spending other people's money on something for yourself. So you're really not concerned about costs. And so uh, costs started really going up. And by the early 80s, the uh, federal government said, oh, my goodness, we created a monster. So then in order to try to keep control costs from going out of control, they started uh, mainly for political reasons, uh, focusing on uh, the providers of health care rather than on the demand side, because there are a lot more voting demanders than they are voting suppliers. Well, and up here in Canada, they've, <clears throat> they've tried little things to limit this constant cycle of I have a sniffle, so I've got to go see the doctor. And they tried putting it like a $5 copay was just floated as an idea, like just pay $5 and go and see the doctor. I mean, that's like half the price of a movie. And of course, everyone went insane. Like you're somehow, to me, if your ailment is not worth at least $5 to go and get it looked at, you probably shouldn't. Like if you've got some weird lump with an eyeball growing out of your cheek, five bucks is not going to be the barrier for you going to see a doctor. Uh, so, and I, I, the other thing I wanted to mention too, which I've talked about on this show, you know, the process of getting into my 40s and I guess I'm close to 50 now is my eyes slowly going out of focus. I didn't need glasses till I was in my 40s. One of the things that happens when you private, when you socialize a formerly private system is that you inherit all of the uh, work ethic of people who went into that system in order to be customer focused, to be in the free market. And so those people, they don't just wake up like when Canada socialized healthcare, they didn't just wake up and say, well, that's it. I'm going to be a bureaucrat and I'm not going to care that much because they still have that same work ethic they've had for 20 years or 30 years. They still have that same relationship with their customers. But what happens is the system slowly goes out of focus in that the new people coming in don't have that same free market discipline and work ethic that so much rewarded doctors under a free health or a free market healthcare system. They become a little bit more bureaucratic, a little bit more comfortable. Like here in Canada, um, you, you can bill to a maximum every year. And the month before that year end, it's really tough to find a doctor because they've all reached their maximum. So they just don't uh, really show up this way. They take all they take their vacation. So when you get a socialized system, usually it's funded through debt, so it seems free. And, of course, the doctors are happy because there's lots of free money. The patients are happy because the doctor's work ethic is still very strong. But a generation later, and this is why it's so hard to fight these systems, a generation later, it's really gone out of focus, and then it's really become very entrenched. Sorry for that minor sort of intrusion, but I just wanted to get that point across to people. It's like cocaine. It's like, wow, this is great. Why would I never... <laughs> Ever, why would you never do this? And it's like, well, because you wake up. That's a really excellent point. And you got me just, as you were saying that, I'm reflecting. and I'm thinking to, it even, uh, even uh, impacts the behavior. So, for example, in an effort to try to keep costs down, obviously, at first, you, you, for political reasons, you try to put all sorts of regulations on how doctors practice medicine. Because the presumption is that the doctor is going to be over-treating because there's no disincentive to over-treating. Um, by the way, most doctors, in defense of doctors, we, we are professionals and we're ethical. So we don't want to, and we, it, it would, you know, we, we, we uh, our consciences would bother us if we were doing something that we believe was 
unnecessary. On the other hand, we're humans, so we, we are very good at rationalizing. So things that might not be essential but aren't a good idea, you know, I'm sure a lot of us say, you know, why don't you get this in this test or get this? In this? It's, it's not like you have to have it done, but since you're not paying for it anyway, it's not a bad idea to get it. So there's that. But in any case, as the regulations started coming down, uh, so that you had these all of these bureaucratic barriers between the patient and the doctor, my generation of doctor, that you mentioned it, you know, we were from the private days. So um, our concern was in, in not letting those regulations get in the way of what we thought was the best thing to do for our patients. So we'd always come up with workarounds because, you know, as the old, they used to say in the old Soviet Union, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. <laughs> and, and it's the same thing with, with anything. So so they would come up with some regulation and we'd come up with some way after there's a very short learning curve. You figure out, you know, which which box you have to check off in order to get this particular thing you want to do authorized. You just have to know, you know, what to say. Of course, that created sort of a culture of mendacity because you're having to, in effect, sort of cheat. But you got what you wanted done for your patient. Uh, as the next generations come along and the one after that and the one after that, they're, they're, they're being trained in centers where this is the norm, you know, whereas my generation was trained uh, in an atmosphere where the norm was a direct relationship between you and your patient. So the younger guys are much more rule followers. They're compliant. They, they're more like bureaucrats. They, you know, they don't try to find workarounds to help out their patient. They just tell their patient, uh, can't do that. Uh, or they don't even mention certain things to their patients uh, because they know it's not going to be a- approved by the regulators. So your your point is very well taken. I'm seeing that actually in the way doctors practice. Now there are, there are some doctors, as you know, there's a rising. Uh, you, you may or may not know here in the United States, there's a rising uh, tide of what's called third party free medicine or direct care medicine. More and more. Uh, physicians, it's much easier to do, by the way, when you're a primary care doctor, not a specialist like me, who deals in a lot of expensive things. But more and more uh, doctors are saying, you know what, I'm tired of playing this game. I don't feel good about the way I'm practicing medicine. I don't feel like a professional. I don't like to have all these rules. I'm, even though I know this is probably going to be a financial hit, I'm pulling out of all insurance plans. I'm pulling out of Medicare. I'm pulling out of Medicaid. Uh, I'm just going to publish my prices. I don't have to use these Byzantine coding systems because it doesn't matter. And I've had conversations with one of them. When I, what, do you, what do you charge uh, for, you know, let's say a hernia operation and they give me a price and I say, well, how do you code that? And I get back a uh, code. I don't need any code. Codes are for the regulators. I just tell them this is my price. That's it. Oh, and just, just for those so outside nice. of America, this is, of course, a combination of, of government-driven regulations and some insurance stuff. There are thousands and thousands of ways in which you have to codify medical treatments, and the prices for those are fixed, right? And uh, that, of course, is a big problem. I remember when I was a kid, a friend of mine who was really, I thought, would, would make a great natural doctor was kind of humming and hawing, saying, okay, well, I really like helping people and healing people. On the other hand, statistically, I can look forward to spending 30 to 40 percent of my day filling out paperwork. And so basically, I can really help people a lot, stay healthy or become healthy. On the other hand, I'm going to spend close to half of my professional life doing the medical equivalent of taxes. And that really um, made a very person-centered 
human being want to veer away from the profession as a whole. And I think that's happening to doctors um, who are older. I was reading the other day that uh, if the numbers remind, if I remember the numbers rightly, you have 35,000 doctors a year in America leaving the profession and the replenishment rate is only 22,000 of, of course, inexperienced doctors who've grown up in a semi-socialist system. And that's a very different way uh, that it's going to go in the future. Well, there's electronic health record system. That's another one. Okay. So, um, Back in the late 90s, the VA system, which was, we, of course, we've all heard these horror stories about the VA system. Well, it was even worse in the 90s. And, and uh, some reforms took place. And actually, they were good reforms. It was improved for a while. The reformer who did that has since moved on. But they, uh, of course, are sort of a closed system. And they adapted electronic record keeping, which helped them a lot. And I'm not in any way a troglodyte. I'm all for you know being digital and electronic. But um, as I'm sure anybody watching this would, would agree, that when you decide in your, in your business or whatever enterprise you're involved in that you want to go digital, you usually hire a consultant who studies the way you do things and your particular needs because everyone's unique and everyone has their own situation. And then you design a, a system or program around what, you, what your particular specific needs are to enhance your ability to do things. Well, what they decided to do back uh, in the uh, early 2000s, actually was in a Bush administration, was they, they, uh, they, they started a pilot program. They wanted to do a five-year study where they would give incentives for doctors to adopt an electronic health record system because since the experience at the VA was good with it and at a couple of other uh, integrated health systems like Kaiser Permanente and uh, Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic, then... Therefore, it has to, this is good for everyone. So they designed a system. Uh, it's interesting. This was funded. The lobbying for this was, was uh, heavy from uh, GE and Cerner, two big electronic health record companies. Uh, and they, this, they had a so-called pilot program that after five years, they were going to sit back and see those doctors that chose to do this, if this indeed led to uh, lower costs, less errors, increased productivity, and, 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 and that was their plan. Then in the so-called stimulus package that was passed in 2009, this is before the Affordable Care Act, this is shortly after uh, the Obama administration took, took office, um, they decided they're not going to continue with the five-year pilot program. It was only one year into it, I think it was, maybe two. And uh, they just abruptly said, we're going to require all physicians to do this. And then as the stimulus was, if you adopt this by a certain date, then the government at a taxpayer dollars will reimburse the providers for the expenses that they had to go through to purchase the system. So, and if you don't do it, then you will get penalized by Medicare. Eventually, 5%, you'll get a 5% decrease in your reimbursement for every single thing that you do for Medicare. So, uh, most doctors, you know, were pressured into this, um, and they adopted this electronic health record system. But this was, system was not built around the doctor. It was instead what we all found us having to do was kind of modify the way we perform to fit the system as opposed mm -hmm. to the way around. And the system was designed 
to, to meet the needs of regulators and bureaucrats and data collectors. So you found yourself, like here, I'm a surgeon, and I'm, when I do my electronic health records, I'm supposed to make sure that my patient's immunization schedules are up to date and their preventive care is all taken care of, but I'm not a primary care doctor. So that's not what I usually spend my time doing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a specialist. I'm a surgeon. People are referred to me by primary care doctors for problems that require surgery, like a hernia or a gallbladder problem, problems or something like that. So in order to satisfy the demands of the regulator, for me to be in compliance and not be penalized, I have to have all of these different aspects of my electronic record filled in with information that is not of any use to me and is not relevant to anything I'm doing. And, and also, when I have to review electronic records of, of another physician in order for me to, you know, let's say I'm asked to consult on a case or I'm at the hospital, I'm visiting a patient that I'm consulting on, and I'm going into the electronic record, I, my eyes have to scan over line after line after line of completely irrelevant information that was entered by doctors who themselves knew this is not germane or relevant, but they have to do it. So I'm... Uh, you know, uh, I'm a surgeon and I'm coming to see this patient. I'm reading how his aunt had gout and his uh, his cousin once had uh, venereal disease and all. And I'm still trying, where is it in this record where there's a reason why I, as a surgeon, was called in? I'm still looking for it. And what you wind up doing over time is your eyes skim and try to get right down to the bottom line so you can see why the surgeon's called. And every once in a while, when you do that, you actually skim over some vital piece of information because it's, it's sort of like reading a telephone book and passing over the name and phone number of a person's telephone number you're trying to look at. So you make a mistake. There's been a lot of recent peer review st studies done on this suggest that, that demonstrate that since we've all been forced to go to electronic medical records, it's actually increased our error rate. Um, the, there is, uh, you, you remember the famous uh, patient zero uh, in uh, Texas, uh, who was he was sent home from this emergency room in Dallas with Ebola. Yeah. He yeah. went to the emergency department. He told the triage nurse, I'm from Liberia. I've been with Ebola patients. I think I may have it now. And there was nothing in the electronic record uh, template to deal with that kind of complaint. And everything right. has to be according to the template. So the nurse wrote down in hand, the old-fashioned way, important information that needed to be passed on to the emergency physician once the patient got in. and uh, But the emergency physician is running from patient to patient and going immediately to the computer screen. So the emergency the emergency physician overlooked that little post-it note that was had vital information. And he just looked at the computer screen and the template said nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, which is almost always in the Western world a case of gastroenteritis. He went in spoke to the patient, the patient didn't restate everything he'd already said because he assumed the doctor knew this, and the patient was sent home with treatment for gastroenteritis, and of course we know the rest of the story. So these, so what's happening is um, doctors are spending a great deal of their time focusing on compliance rather than directly listening to their patient and making judgments. And another thing is these rules are actually steering us away from our our, what our judgment based upon our experience would tell us uh, in the operating room. This is my this is my domain. So in the operating room, they have all of these rules that now have been imposed upon hospitals, where um, and, and again it was all well intended. 
Um, they're supposed to be, before the surgery is started, there's supposed to be a checklist of, uh, uh, be, before the surgeon makes his incision, the nurse in the operating room is to say, say this is so-and-so, we are here to do a so-and-so, this is Dr. Jones, this is Dr. Smith, the anesthesia. And it's kind of like, it really feels kind of silly because, you know, while the patient was being put to sleep, everybody was watching you talk to the patient and everything else. But you have to, this is called um, uh, timeout. It's called timeout. And this was recommended actually by the WHO. So among the things that um, are stated is, and the patient has received an antibiotic preoperatively or not, okay? Well, since the patient has received an antibiotic as part of the checklist, that's uh, caused a lot of doctors who don't think that there's an antibiotic necessary for this. For example, uh, a clean operation that does not require uh, an implant. Uh, Let's say you're doing um, a a breast biopsy. Uh, So you're not putting a foreign material in a person. It's a clean, it's not an infected case. There's absolutely no indication to give that person prophylactic antibiotics. We were trained that way, not to give them. That is no reason for it. But as part of the normal checklist is, and the patient received an antibiotic, yes or no? So a lot of doctors, because that's one of the questions, they're led to believe, I guess the new rules are I'm supposed to give an antibiotic. So they give one. That just happened to me the other day where the anesthesiologist blurted out during the timeout, yes, I gave the patient a gram of cefazolin. And I said, why did you give the patient a gram of cefazolin? There's no need for cefazolin. Well, I thought you overlooked it. I said, no, I intentionally didn't give the antibiotic. See, that's what happens. You understand what I'm saying? It makes you kind of suspend your own independent judgment and just follow the template and the protocol. So, you're, like a, you're like a train on a track. You know, this is what the bureaucracy has laid out for us. So we kind of suspend our judgment, just go with the momentum of the rules at a time when, of course, you're dealing with life and death and your alertness and your sense of efficacy and your thinking needs to be front and center. You're surrendering to the protocol and to the algorithm. And then as we're seeing a, a, a dramatic increase in antibiotic-induced uh, diarrhea. You know, I'm sure they have that in Canada also. There's a kind of colitis that could be life-threatening, a side effect of, of antibiotics. Well, I'm, I'm sure I haven't done a study, so I can't. I'm, I, I'm only talking anecdotally here, but I got to think that a lot of it is due to these unnecessary uses of antibiotics because of the, the timeout. That makes doctors automatically just do it to so they could check it off that they did it. So these things are influencing the way doctors conduct themselves. And more and more, like I said earlier, more and more of my colleagues are saying, I, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to play this way. I don't feel good about myself as a professional. And they're leaving. Now, at the same time, more and more patients are waiting longer and longer to get, get to see a doctor. Uh, they're most of the time not getting seen by the doctor, but by seeing, by, often get, getting seen by a physician extender. I have no objections to that, but if you're paying for or you're expecting to see somebody else, I think you, you, know, you have a right to get what you, you're paying for. And, um, uh, and then what ends up happening is um, they're, they're waiting longer. They're oftentimes getting rushed through. They, they feel like they're on a conveyor belt. Lots of times the, the doctor's spending more time typing and looking at the computer screen than looking and listening to them. And they're getting dissatisfied. So those, there are a large number of them who are saying, you know what? I don't care that I have this insurance that I was forced to buy. I'm, I'm going to go to this doctor who doesn't take insurance and pay cash because he spends time with me. 
And uh, a lot of these doctors that I'm talking to are telling me, you know, instead of seeing 40 patients a day, I'm seeing 12 patients a day. I'm spending much more time with them. I'm feeling good about what I do again. I'm actually enjoying work. And at the end of the day, I'm not really making a lot less money because I only need one assistant in the office instead of six to deal with all of the compliance costs and regulations. So when you consider that, I'm actually uh, I'm not I'm not even suffering financially by making that decision. I'm certainly benefiting, you know, psychically by making that decision. Yeah, I mean, there's a funny law of unintended consequences that shows up in just about every field where supply and demand is is present and in healthcare I think it's particularly egregious, which is if you want to reduce the price of something, you either have to increase the supply of something or you have to reduce the demand. Now it seems like there's pretty much a bottomless demand for healthcare in the human condition. I don't know exactly why. I mean, most guys don't like going to doctors. I don't know if maybe it's women or whatever, but there seems to be a pretty bottomless desire for, for healthcare. You know, every sniffle re- results in a, in a visit. And so to me, if you wanted to reduce the costs of healthcare, you would increase competition. You know, one of the big problems is that uh, insurance companies can't sell across state lines, so there's not competition. The other thing, too, is you would not mandate what insurance companies have to cover because everybody with an obscure ailment wants to get on the bandwagon of forcing everyone to pay for the insurance costs. Um, And thirdly, of course, you would increase the supply of doctors. Now, I guess there's this magic wand that Obama has or uh, socialists have in general, which is, well, we can massively increase the supply of something while the, uh, the demand, sorry, we can massively increase the demand for something while the supply of it is going down. And magically, everyone will get great health care. But the problem is, if people think that their health care is free, they change how they live. You know, I mean, if I knew I could never crash my motorcycle, how would I drive? Well, it would change how I drive my motorcycle. So the fact that people think there's going to be this infinity of health care in the future means that they're changing their decisions. They're letting themselves get fatter. Maybe they're not exercising as much because it's like, oh, you know, my treatment will be free or something will happen X down the future. They're not getting the price signals from their insurance companies about their lifestyles, which would be preventive. And I think that there's going to be in 10 or 20 years a much escalated demand for health care without the doctors there to provide it. And without the price mechanism, all that you're going to get is the usual socialist USSR-style shortages. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting to say that, though, uh, but it's what insurance people call moral hazard. So um, it, there's a lot that, lot you covered just there in, in your what you just said. Uh, for those who are interested, I, I, um, I, I give a course with a colleague of mine at Arizona State University uh, extension. It, it's going to be given again this January. It's called America's Healthcare System Historical Perspectives and Current Issues, where we discuss how we got to where we are, starting with colonial times. There's a lot of history. And um, and then that course was kind of condensed into uh, about a 90-minute video course that's available on Learn Liberty online, which is a project of the Institute for Humane Studies. And if you go to learnliberty.org, and look under Learn Liberty Academy, it's free. It's an on-demand course. But the point I was going to make is we talk about how throughout the 19th century, medicine in, in, in the Americas organized to try to create a cartel. The AMA was created in 1848 with the express mission of trying to get states to license doctors. And they did it, again, through typical special interest pleading at the state legislatures. Originally in the early 19th century, 
Um, the doctors, many doctors had to hold down a second job to make a living. They were, and, and, and most, well, it's understanding back then also medicine was not very effective too. So most people, um, kind of trusted mom or grandma and a lot of things were done in the most common caregiver was the mother and things were taken care of on their own. There were books that were published on how to care for yourself. And they were pretty skeptical of doctors. There were many different schools of thought because there wasn't a lot of science on it. But, um, um, the different state medical associations got organized and they went before state legislatures asking them to license doctors, of course, because to protect the public against, against of course, people. Absolutely. You know, you can't, can't give the public choice in providers because they're idiots. So let's protect them and fence them in with regulations and everything. It has nothing great. to do with us. It has to do with them. We're trying to protect the people. And most legislatures back in the early 19th century responded by saying, license? You don't need a license to work. This is this is America. You just work. You know, well, what about if, if there are bad actors? Well, they'll quickly be found out and they'll get punished for it. But you don't need a. So a couple of states were convinced to, to do state licensing, New York State being one of them. But even then, the license wasn't required in order to practice medicine. It was treated like a seal of approval. So you can go get a licensed doctor or an unlicensed one, just like you have a licensed contract or an unlicensed one. So then after Andrew Jackson became president, there was this wave, a uh, populist wave. Uh, they, you know, the National Bank was terminated. And those states that had licensed physicians actually repealed their licensing programs. It wasn't until the late 19th century where the AMA was successful because by this time, the relationship between the national government and people had changed after the Civil War. The Progressive Era was coming. There were people getting already comfortable with the concept of licensing certain occupations like the trades. So this time they were able to get states to license doctors. And initially, the licensing board consisted of the state medical association. So you, to be a doctor, you had to join the state medical association, which then determined whether or not you could practice. And then later, they used... Uh, the AMA started uh, ranking and rating medical schools, which is, again, this is perfectly legitimate to rate and accredit, to rank the schools. The U.S. News and World Report ranks the colleges, Princeton Review does. There's nothing wrong with that service being available as an information source. But what they got the state legislatures to do was not allow licenses to doctors who didn't graduate AMA-approved medical schools. So over time, they basically created a cartel and that shrunk down. And to this day, it exists where there's a... Well, and that's the grandfathering in. So the people who already had the degrees from the non-accredited schools were grandfathered in and therefore didn't oppose what was going on. And exactly. it's a wonderful way. You use the government to create the electric fence that keep competitors out so you can begin to drive up prices. So that's part of the supply side. To this day, in many states, uh, I'm, I'm in a state that aside from the two urban centers, Phoenix and Tucson, it's a very rural state. You could drive hours between small communities were in the West. Um, telemedicine would seem to be perfect for a state like this. Uh, let's say you're 300 miles from Phoenix and you got a rash and there's no dermatologist around, but you could take a picture of your rash and send it into a dermatologist in Phoenix. And a dermatologist most of the time could diagnose it and phone in a prescription to your pharmacy. However, um, our state doesn't allow a doctor to prescribe a medication unless the doctor has examined that patient in person, okay? You could look at it. You can give an opinion in our state. Some states can't even do that, but you're not allowed to treat. Um, that's just one example. Um, there's all sorts of certificate of need. Every every part of the medical prov provision in, it has got its own cartel. There's a hospital cartel. 
There's the insurance cartel where we have 50 different states, each with their own cartelized insurance systems. In some states, there's only one insurance company selling insurance. In Alabama, it's Blue Cross. That's it. There's no choice. Um, so yeah, on, on, on the supply side, you do have everything's cartelized, which is, has decreased the ability of people to have choice and competition. Also, um, there are a lot of, for a lot of services, you know, people might not need a, a, a trained physician, maybe a paramedical person would be adequate for, uh, you know, routine physical exam and some vaccinations and things like that. But in, depending on the state, you may not be able to see a nurse practitioner or a, a paramedical professional, a physician's assistant, depending on the state. Uh, again, this is all part of the cartel. So that's, you know, one end of things. And then there's the whole idea of third-party payment. Uh, and I've written extensively on this. Insurance, as you know, is, 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 is a market response to the problem of uncertainty. That's what it's supposed to deal with. It's when you can't, uh, you, you, because you can't have any certainty, you can't derive at a price. So that's where the insurance is supposed to solve that problem. So there's a lot of things. Healthcare is, a, is a, something that's rife with uncertainty. You don't know if you're ever going to need health health care. You don't know if you're ever going to get sick. You don't know if it's going to be successful and you don't know when it's going to happen. However, 90% of health expenditures are for things that are knowable, predictable, and don't have that problem of uncertainty. They're routine maintenance things. For example, um, getting a checkup, getting a, a screening colonoscopy, or uh, we all know we're going to get a cold now and then. Or uh, even maintenance things like uh, I get a hernia. Hernia is not going to kill you. It's something that needs to be fixed, but it's a maintenance thing. When you buy homeowner's insurance, you still need to do maintenance on your house, and you don't have homeowner's insurance for that. So when your house needs a painting or maybe uh, you, need, you want new insulation or new, new window coverings, you don't have insurance for that. You have insurance when your house burns down or get, or the roof collapses or something like that, which are, these are things you cannot, cannot predict can, and, and, and they could be catastrophic. Well, what's happened and this, this is, it's all covered by the way, in, in that online course and in my course, but over yeah, the, and we'll, we'll make sure we link to that below so people can click on it. And, and definitely it's worth review, reviewing, but please go ahead. Yeah. Well, over the years, tax policy, and this is when the government, so first you had the government, the, the, the providers using the government to restrict competition. So they, you know, everyone's got, got blood on their hands here. Then the politicians started just throwing money at things to give free stuff away because that would help them get into power. But then when that started costing too much, they started clamping down with all sorts of regulations. And among the things that they did, the giveaways, was the tax treatment of health insurance. So if your employer provided you with health insurance, that would suddenly be considered a non-taxable benefit. Whereas if you bought health insurance out of your own pocket, you'd purchase that with after-tax dollars. That, was, that became law actually in the early 1950s. And when that happened, all of a sudden, you know, it, it makes sense. Market incentives were uh, to, to compete for employees. Businesses would offer health plans. And, of course, the less out-of-pocket uh, that the health insurance covered, then the less after-tax dollars need to be used for paying for your health care because it's all paid for by the your employer's provided health insurance. So it, it made health insurance evolve from being true insurance to basically being a tax deferred prepaid health plan. It's, it's sort of like an IRA. And that is what 
uh, generated all of the disincentive, the, the, the higher demand, because when you, you get the perception, at least, uh, uh, you know, at the margin, your perception is that you're not paying for it. It's free. So you got no, no reason to think about, is this really necessary? How much does this cost? And, and, and so now- and all of that, sorry to interrupt, but all of that came about because in World War II, the U.S. government prevented employers from giving raises to people. And so right. what they did was they absorbed health care costs instead. And because it was tax free, there was an incentive to load as many medical services as possible onto health insurance. Like, as you point out, you don't have car insurance. It's for it's for a catastrophic accident. It's not for an oil change in a checkup. But because it was advantageous and this is where people could compete uh, on soaking up as much tax-free uh, healthcare as possible. This is why you have these ridiculous plans that cover entirely predictable things like going to get a health, health checkup. And that should have nothing to do with insurance. So the third party has basically wedged itself between the consumer and the producer slash provider. And, and therefore, you can't have two market forces. I, had a, uh, uh, I wrote an article that was in the Wall Street Journal in August of 2013. Uh, and they called it you know, the editor puts the title on it. It was better than my title. And the title was, The Man Who Was Treated for $17,000 Less. And it's a true story. It was a patient who came to me with a hernia, and he wanted it fixed at a particular hospital. And so we scheduled it there. And he had uh, insurance, which is now illegal in Arizona, I mean, in the United States, because of the Affordable Care Act. He had a high deductible catastrophic indemnity policy. Indemnity means that it pays a fixed amount for certain things. So if you needed a preventative maintenance kind of thing, it would pay a fixed amount. If you had to be in a hospital for catastrophic illness, then it would pay the full amount after the deductible. So um, a lot of hospitals are getting into the practice now of when it's a non-emergency thing like this, a scheduled elective surgery, um, and when you check in, they're able to go online and see exactly how much you met towards your deductible. And they can estimate what your out-of-pocket uh, participation will be, and they try to collect it from you up front because a lot of people, they don't think it's they should pay anything. The insurance should take care of all of it. So after the insurance pays, they don't pay the balance due, and the hospital ends up eating it. The difference. So they did that with this gentleman, and I get a phone call from the uh, while I'm getting ready. I have a whole bunch of surgeries at that hospital that day, and um, the clerk says your next patient wants to cancel because he doesn't want to pay, and I. I knew the guy, and he didn't seem like that kind of guy. And I said, well, explain to me. And she says, well, he has this, you know, Acme uh, indemnity insurance plan, and it pays up to $2,500 for the surgeon and the anesthesiologist for the operation, and it pays up to $2,500 for the use of the room. It's an outpatient. I said, okay, so what's the problem? And she says, well, there's, there's no problem with the doctors, but um, our charge for the use of the room is $23,000. So we asked him if he would give us a credit card for his expected payment, which would be 20000 and he doesn't want to. I said, I'm not doing a heart operation. I'm just doing a hurry operation. I'm sorry, doctor. That's our, that's our charge. So I said, can I talk to him, please? And they put him on the phone. And I said to him, he didn't know he was getting uh, a healthcare wonk as a surgeon. <laughs> so um, I said to him, um, you're not supposed to see that number. That's called the list master price. That's what doctors and hospitals use this high inflated so-called retail price to negotiate with a third-party payer. And, you know, the hospital says 23000 the insurance company says 10000 and they reach a spot somewhere in the middle. And if you're in one of these PPO plans, all you have is a copay of $500. And that's all you know about. 
Um, but because you wanted a few people left who has insurance that, by the way, I think everybody should have, um, you got to see that number because they can't budge from that number because that's their official number for negotiating. So I said, but here's the good news. Since um, you're, you're not in a PPO, neither you nor I are bound by any contract where we have to stay within the, the network. So here's what I propose. Let's cancel a surgery. Um, just because you have insurance doesn't mean you need to use insurance. Haven't you sometimes uh, chosen not to use your auto insurance with a little minor fender bender in a parking lot and just kind of settle it privately? Yeah. Okay, well, we, there's no reason why you can't do your health expenses that way, too. I'll be happy to give you a quote, a cash quote. I'm sure I can get an anesthesiologist to do the same. Give me about an hour. Let me have my assistant call. We can't go here now because they know about you, but call another hospital, and we'll simply say, I have a gentleman here who is cash pay. What's the best price you can quote him for the use of an operating room for hernia repair? And we didn't lie. We said you're cash pay, which means you want to pay cash. They're going to interpret that as uninsured. And they'll come up with a quote because they don't have to negotiate with an insurance company. And sure enough, within about an hour, we had a quote of $2,000. So we rescheduled the next day and he paid a total of a little over $3,000. So he saved $17,000 by not using his insurance, by bypassing the third-party payer. Now, that started a whole more, I actually had a lot of people come into my office because that was in the Wall Street Journal. Then it was I was on Fox News about that. And Rush Limbaugh even read that article on his radio show. People started making appointments. And when they call for an appointment, the, the, automatically the receptionist would ask them what their insurance was and they, and they would tell them. And then when they would show up and at the check-in desk, the receptionist would say, can I have a copy of your insurance card, please? And they'd say, oh, uh, I'm not going to use my insurance. I want to pay cash. Then we'd have a problem because the... the, the I, you know, they told us they had insurance and I'm bound by contract, so I can't go outside of insurance. So it led to some awkward moments. But the, the point is that by not using insurance, is, is the th our, our policies have led to a, a system where we don't have a market. So there's a third, the third party is the problem. We want to have, get to a system where 90% of everybody's health expenditures are direct. And then you'll see differences in utilization because when people are paying, just like when you go to the supermarket, you know, you look at the... Uh, you know, the, uh, the caviar in the freezer, and you really may be tempted by it, but you look at how much money you have in your wallet, and you say, well, you know what, I maybe someday, but right now I'm, I'm just going to pass on the caviar. You know, I'll get the salmon roe instead. So that's what people need to be doing with healthcare, And there's no, at the moment, there's no incentive for that. And there is without, I don't know, I, I, it sounds harsh, but without catastrophe, there's no efficiency. So one of the things, of course, uh, somebody gets sick with some very expensive ailment in a free market system and has not bought health insurance, then that person is in significant trouble. You know, they're going to have to really go to their church or go to their friends or go to their family or go into debt. Or, and some people are just not going to get treated because they didn't get their health care insurance in the same way that if you don't buy home insurance and your house burns down, you've got a nice smoking crater where your house used to be. And that's why you buy insurance, because if you don't, really bad things happen. And one of the things, of course, that happened in the United States is um, that you no longer had to buy insurance before you got sick. And, and, you know, this, you know, you can't deny people for pre-existing conditions. For a lot of people, that meant I'll wait till I get sick and then I will apply for insurance, which insanely drives up the price of insurance for everyone 
who decides to get insurance before they get sick because they have to pay for all of that risk that wasn't it's happening right now by you, the people who pay later. You Sorry, go ahead. Reading in the press, this what's happening right now. There's huge. The, the, November first is when the new open enrollment begins for the Affordable Care Act for the exchanges. And it's in today's uh, Wall Street Journal, but it's, we've been hearing a lot about it last week. Huge increases, thirty to forty to fifty percent increases, or cutbacks. Here in Arizona, for example, people are being told that. Blue Cross of Arizona, which had, had a, for individuals, had a PPO, preferred provider agreement, starting with the next cycle, there's not going to be any more PPO. It's going to be the old HMO system that everybody hated with these gatekeepers and authorizations and all, because they're trying to cut back on overutilization. But but that's what a lot, that's largely driven by the what's called the, the guaranteed issue community rating feature. Under the Affordable Care Act, not, not only can you not deny someone for pre-existing condition, but you're not allowed to charge them any differently than anyone else. So you could have a 30-year-old, non-smoking, non-drinking triathlete who's got no medical problems wanting to purchase insurance, who's obviously should be an excellent risk, and a 30-year-old heroin addict who has a drinking problem, who's already got hepatitis C and uh, maybe HIV positive. And you can't charge, you can't deny him insurance, and you can't charge him any different than the triathlete. So, as a, as a, an insurance company, you have to calculate how much money you need to have in the pool to pay out claims, and you're going to have to jack up the rates on the healthy guy uh, in order to, to make the rates lower on the unhealthy guy to make them. And that's why they have to force people to buy because the young people who are not math illiterate, right, they can count without taking their shoes off, they look at that and say, okay, so there's a lot of old sick people or all the people with chronic health conditions and 70% of people's health issues are lifestyle related, which is a nice way of saying you all cost it by making bad choices. So young people are looking and saying, well, I think I'll roll the dice because it's coming up snake eyes when I roll it in the existing system. And then the government has to step in and force them to buy insurance, which they don't want to buy because it makes no sense. It's a direct subsidy to people who've made bad choices. Not all, but a lot of it is a direct subsidy. People have made bad choices or choose to have the good fortune to get old and are sucking up healthcare costs like crazy. How is that beneficial to the young from a sort of immediate self-interest financial standpoint? So the government got to herd them into the system because there's no incentive for it. But what's happening is, if you read just the other day, um, the decline of, I think it's called, called the decline of Obamacare. It was in the Wall Street Journal editorial. I think it was yesterday, maybe. Um, what they're finding is that people are choosing to pay the penalty because people are not dumb. So they're doing the math. So you got a choice. You can either pay you know, $400 a month. Which is thirty six hundred dollars a year? Well, it's forty eight hundred dollars a year. I'm sorry, I was a biology major, not a math major. So it's, <laughs> you pay four hundred dollars a month for a five thousand dollar deductible. So that means you're, you're into this thing for about ten thousand dollars before you even realize you have health insurance, or and you're healthy. You're you know you're in your thirties. You know you, you you maybe once every year you go to a doctor for a, a really bad cold. That's about it. Or you pay six hundred ninety five dollar fine. It makes sense to pay the fine. So that's what's happening there. They're actually choosing to pay the fine and not enroll, which is magnifying the problem because they need them in there paying for healthcare they're not going to use so that the prices don't have to be even higher for the people who are using healthcare, which is driving the premiums up further. And it's creating what they call in the insurance industry a death spiral, where eventually it becomes priced out of range. Nobody's putting any money in. Well, yeah, without the moral hazard, insurance becomes a negative overhead. Like if if uh, uh, if you only bought insurance after you crashed your car, 
then insurance would make no sense because you'd have the cost of the car crash plus all the overhead of insurance. It would just be a net negative. The whole point is you have to have the moral hazard for it to work. And the fact, like, it's like trying to say the casino can stay in business if everybody's a winner. Right. No, so, it can't. You have to have so, the hazard. Now, two other issues I wanted to bring up. Um, uh, the, the first is the question of illegal immigration and its effects on healthcare. It's kind of like a hidden issue. I was talking to a researcher the other day who was pointing out that, you know, if you come in as an illegal immigrant, you're making five, 10, maybe 15 bucks an hour. Well, if you've got a family, you're probably in the hole for like 18 to 20 K in health insurance. Your wages can't even cover, cover health insurance. So generally, a lot of illegal immigrants end up uninsured and then they end up frog marching into the emergency room when they have an issue, which, of course, is pretty much the most expensive way to treat health issues. It's not preventive. It's hysterically responsive, which is very, very cost prohibitive. Do you see, and he, his argument was that Obamacare was in, to some degree the result of uh, illegal immigration, uh, be, leaving people uninsured, and that, that driving up health care costs. No, actually, uh, yeah, I don't understand it. I can say that. And I live in a state where that's a big issue. We're a border state. Yeah. First of all, um, as far as the illegal immigration is concerned, the data suggests, I, I can tell you from personal experience, they don't, they don't go to emergency rooms unless they're really sick. Um, I get a lot of patients in my office who I suspect are illegal immigrants. I don't ask questions. And they pay cash. Interestingly, I don't want to digress too much, but just from that third-party analogy, I had two patients the same day who both needed MRIs of the breast, which is not commonly needed. That's why I remembered it so well. One had insurance, Blue Cross, high deductible. The other had no insurance. She works cleaning houses. She's a single mom. And she, I explained to her, I hate to put you through this expense, but this is... I really need to do this. And she said, it has to be, it has to be. So we shopped around and we got her in that day for a breast MRI. And she paid $300 cash. The other patient who had insurance, after authorization, oh, we got her in a few days later. And of course, the insurance was billed $1,400 for the breast MRI. It was repriced by insurance to $800, which she paid because she had a $5,000 deductible. So the person who had no insurance was paying cash got treated right away for less money. Again, that's the oh. whole indictment of the third party system. But I digress. The, 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 uh, the fact is there have been numerous studies on what's called uncompensated care. The illegal immigrants are not the large uh, – in certain parts of the country, the illegal immigrants showing up in emergency rooms are, uh, uh, are certainly a, a major cost. In other parts of the country, they're not. It depends on what part of the country they are. And the federal government, for the most part, pays doctors and hospitals. It's called federal Medicaid. So they actually reimburse the doctors and hospitals for taking care of those patients. I can tell you from personal experience. So that's not the driver. The so-called driver was the legal American residents who don't have insurance and supposedly show up in the ER for their care. Well, there is some of that. First of all, you got to realize a lot of these people do pay their bills. And unfortunately, they're paying that retail price like my man who almost paid $17,000 more. So there are some of those. But there have been a number of studies done on just how much uncompensated care there is. One was done by the Liberal Urban Institute, which actually favors national health uh, single-payer system. And their estimate was less than less than 2%, I think it was 1.5%, 1.8%, somewhere in there, uh, of, of health care spending is attributable to uncompensated care. The Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan question, they, they also did a study and they came up with almost identical numbers. And they estimated that, that uncompensated care, um, the so-called um, cost shifting from that, which, you know, where doctors raise their prices to other people and make up for the losses, at most adds 
one to two percent onto the cost of health insurance. And also, cost shifting is not so easy, especially when number one, if you're a Medicare patient, I can't raise my rates to Medicare because I'm under price control since the 1980s. It doesn't matter. I could charge a million dollars. I'm going to get paid whatever Medicare pays me, and that's it. Same thing with Medicaid and most uh, private insurance. I'm bound by a contract contracted fee schedule that I signed. So it's not so easy to cost shift anyway. But so, but it's an overblown. It's a, it was an overblown straw man used to get people to go along with the idea of the Affordable Care Act. And I always had a logical problem with this. So, because I would say to myself, okay, so you're telling me that all these people who go to the emergency room who don't have health insurance are costing me money. So, to help me out of that problem, you're going to raise taxes on me and force me to pay for insurance for those people or raise or indirectly raise my insurance premiums to pay for insurance for those people so that when they go to in, in the emergency room, their costs won't be shifted onto me. But all you did was make me pay out of another pocket. So how is that doing me a favor? You're doing me a favor. I mean, you just made me pay for the guy to have insurance so he, that I won't pay for his health care. I don't see logically how that's the solution. And then finally, there was a really a great a study, a great opportunity. It's called the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. This was about, I think it started in 2006. Oregon came into a, 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 an extra grant of money for Medicaid but they only had enough money to put 10,000 new people on Medicaid. So they had a lottery. And uh, uh, healthcare economists from MIT under the famous professor Jonathan Gruber asked for permission to follow these people for outcomes. And so they did. They followed the 10,000 new Medicaid recipients in comparison to those who didn't get Medicaid. And they found no different healthcare outcomes whatsoever, but an increase, of course, in utilization of healthcare services by those on Medicaid and interestingly, an increase in visits to the emergency room over those who don't have insurance. And that makes sense as well. Because, And I could tell, again, from my personal experience as a surgeon, I'll have patients that I've operated on who a day or two later are concerned about the appearance of their incision. And rather than make an appointment, which may not fit into their schedule, to see me in the office and maybe wait a couple hours in the waiting room, they just go to the emergency room. And the emergency room calls me and tells me about it. And then over the phone, I'm trying to kind of treat the problem through the emergency physician's eyes. And the reason he went to the emergency room was cost a lot more money was because that was more convenient to him since he's not paying for it. Why not go to the emergency room? It worked out better for him. So uh, in answer to your question, that's completely false information. Well, I think as far as you being able to shift costs, uh, I can certainly see why there's less flexibility as far as that goes. But the degree to which the government has to pick up costs from people who don't have insurance, uh, I think that they're probably concerned about those rates again, which is one of the reasons why they're trying to herd more people onto the insurance system to make up for that. Now, the other thing, the last thing I wanted to mention, I really appreciate this information. It's great to get, you know, the doctor's view of things is is so important because if you guys aren't happy, we're not happy. So I think that's really important. It seems to me that... The goal is to keep breaking the system until you have to take it over. Because there is this perception that there's a free market healthcare system in the United States. I hear this all the time. And because the system is so expensive and is considered to be not working and so on, although prior to Obamacare, more than 80% of Americans were actually very satisfied with their healthcare, so that's a topic for another time. But it seems to me, whether conscious or not, whether sort of planned or not, the goal is 
keep messing with the system, keep screwing with the incentives until it becomes so unwieldy and so broken that everyone clamors for a full government takeover. Um, what are your thoughts on that possible endgame? I, no, I, 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 I don't think, well, I think some people, that may be the plan. I mean, we heard some politicians during the whole debate, like Harry Reid and, and Nancy Pelosi say, we're going to get to the single-payer system. This is, just bear with us. This is getting us there. So, uh, but I don't, I, don't, I don't think politicians are that smart where they all coordinate so well in a conspiracy. But I do think, so, so I mean, some of them, I think, just don't have an appreciation for economics. They don't really think things through. They don't think about unintended consequences, what is seen and what is not seen. So I think it's a lot of just, you know, power-seeking politicians who don't think things through. But I think at the end of the day, when the system inevitably collapses, and I think we're witnessing it happening slowly right now, the, the natural reaction is going to be, okay, we tried it your way. We tried the private system. Their definition of private system is they were private intermediaries, but basically they're nothing but sort of utilities regulated by the government. Uh, we tried it your way. Now we're going to have to have the, uh, go, go to what they like to call Medicare for all, because Medicare is generally popular. They won't say Medicaid for all, which is what it really would be. And Medicaid is very unpopular because when you cover 315 million people, it's going to be Medicaid for all or VA for all or something like that. But I think that's what never is going to happen. Absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, the so-called defenders of the free market are, you know, most of our political representatives, they're not stating that we don't have private health care. They, they keep talking about we want to preserve, you know, free market medicine. We don't have free market. We haven't had free market medicine in decades. I don't know if we ever really had it, but if we we, we were much closer to it 50 or 60 years ago. And and uh, it need, we need to call this what it is. This is this is basically, we do have a socialized medicine system. There are very, various forms. In England, the government provides the health care through their own system, very much like the VA in Canada. There are private owners of hospitals and doctor's offices, but the government runs it and pays it. And in the United States, there are a few, and they're getting smaller and smaller, they're consolidating, but there's basically a handful of privately owned so-called insurance companies. Right now, they're basically escrow companies, and they're managed by government regulators. But they're, they're all different variations on the same theme, which is government-run medicine. That's what we have. Right. Yeah, and of course, it's a lot easier to expand benefits than it is to run up against the special interest groups uh, from the AMA to the hospitals to the insurance companies that have wound themselves so tightly into government controls that it has become their economic advantage. And when you run up against those special interest groups, you get a lot of pushback, whereas offering people free stuff, sadly, because they don't realize that in the long run, nothing is more expensive than free. Uh, they're just going the, the grease slippery slope towards populist uh, Happiness is to to offer people more free stuff and thus build more stronger, if albeit temporary, economic uh, advantages to special interest groups. So I think politicians are just doing what they do. But the logic of the system, I think, is going to be that eventually it either has to be liberated or it's going to be uh, fully government controlled. And that still will take probably half a generation or more to show its full uh, ill effects as it has here in Canada with, you know, month long or year-long sometimes waits for significant surgeries. I myself had to flee the Canadian system and go to America and pay cash over the barrel in order to get treatment because um, there is no magic wand in the universe to turn shortages into uh, oversupplies. 
And um, what's going to happen is uh, the government is going to take over more and more, it seems like, unless, you know, the push that you and I are behind to try and liberalize things works. Uh, and what's going to happen is um, you're going to stimulate more demand, you're going to stimulate worse health habits, and the supply is going to go down. And what's going to happen is uh, people are going to end up without the health care that they plant their lives around getting largely for free. And um, it's one thing to wait for your um, passport. It's one thing to wait for your driver's license. That's an annoyance, but it won't kill you. But waiting for health care, which is what inevitably happens when you have price gaps and shortages, uh, waiting for health care is, uh, is literally a life or death situation for lots of people. Uh, and by the time they see it, it's going to be very tough to unravel everything that's happened. But there'll be a, a two-tiered system. There's always going to be more and more doctors will opt out. People will pay cash. And you'll have, like you do in most of the countries in the West, you have this socialized system where everybody waits. And then you have another kind of off-the-grid system where people pay cash and get good quality uh, health care. And you see more and more of that, I think. That's what I'm seeing. Well, well, thanks very much for your time today. Um, I, I know that, of course, uh, a lot of my audience kind of young. This stuff might, might seem more like fuddy-duddy stuff, but there's nothing that gets your attention focused on healthcare like aging. So for my older or, you know, just parented uh, listeners, this is all essential stuff to know. So, uh, you know, please like, share, and subscribe to this video. Thank you so much, Dr. Singer, for, of course, all the work you do to bring uh, this uh, awareness to people um, because you kind of take healthcare for granted until you really need it. And then all of the weaknesses of the system really show up. Uh, and at that time, you're too busy dealing with healthcare issues to, to advocate. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing to get this information out to people. Thank you. I enjoy being here. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye.